for just joining us this morning for the first time. We are working our way through the life of Moses and looking at the great redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus events. This morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 14, continuing the story from last week of after 10 powerful plagues, the Lord finally delivered his people from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. And so our story picks up in chapter 14, verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done so that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him. And he took 600,000 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers, all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were all going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all of his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi Haroth in front of Bel Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord then said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that I told the guys on Tuesday when we meet to discuss the sermon that really jumped out to me, and, and I was telling our worship team this morning, I'm glad this is true and sad this isn't always true, but the thing that jumped out to me the most as we've been studying the book of Exodus is just the awesome power of God. I feel all too often that I'm guilty, like a lot of um, either pastors and people in church of wanting to kind of explain away hard teachings in the Bible and make it kind of easy and palatable so that people aren't offended and that they'll kind of examine the truth claims and emphasizing, hey, Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart and this and that. And those things are true. He is the God of all love. And what we read in the Exodus is true. And I don't just simply mean true in that it happened. I mean true in revealing who God is. A God of overwhelming power and holiness and justice who will not tolerate sin and disobedience in any way. It reminded me of a quote I've always been struck by by the famous Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon. 
He says, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here comes all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. As we study the book of Exodus, I hope that there is a right and appropriate shocking nature to these stories that leads our heart to an appropriate reverence and awe for who God is. These stories are meant to reveal to us that he is the God of all glory and all power. It is meant to wake us up from all the ways um, individually and as a culture that we have created a God in our own image. It says in verse 8, this isn't a typo, that the Lord on purpose hardened the heart of Pharaoh. I've heard so many people in conversations, you know, about Exodus always refer to, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's why this happened. And that's true. He did sinfully harden his heart and refuse to let the people go. But if you actually read the whole story in chapter 4, verse 21, it begins by God saying to Moses, go to Pharaoh, do everything I tell you to do. And I, the first time that Pharaoh's heart is, is mentioned of being hardened, the Lord says, I am going to harden his heart on purpose so that he won't let my people go. And Paul says in Romans 9, just so we don't get confused, that the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Translation, God says, Pharaoh, just so you're not confused, the purpose of your life and the reason that I, the Lord, made you the ruler of Egypt and hardened your heart was so that I could destroy you, so that my power could be revealed. Now, you may at this point be thinking, wait a minute, in my American, you know, kind of sensibilities, you need to explain that for me, and I can't, and I'm not going to. Like, I think there needs to be a, a right, shocking nature to, oh my gosh, like the, the one true living God is so much greater and, and more powerful. He is not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, that, that it does need to rightly affect us. And so, so I've even felt all week of, Lord, who am I like to even attempt to get up and try to teach these eternal truths about who you are? Forgive me for all the ways that I don't rightly orient my life in an appropriate reverence of who you are. See, see having an understanding rightly of God's reverence and all matters, not just for eternity, but even in our daily practical behavior. Paul Tripp explains it this way in his book, All, Why It Matters for Everything We Think, Say, and Do. Where you look for all or reverence will shape the direction of your life. It just makes sense that your source of all will control you, your decisions, and the course your story takes. If you live in all of material things, for example, you will spend lots of money acquiring a pile of material stuff. To afford your ever-increasing pile, you have to work a lot. You will also tend to attach your identity and inner sense of peace to material possessions. 
spending way too much time collecting and maintaining them. If material things are your all source, you will neglect other things of value, and you won't ever be fully satisfied because these material things just don't have the capacity to satisfy your all-longing heart. Yes, your house will be big, car will be luxurious, you'll be surrounded with beautiful things, but your contentment in areas that really count will be small. Now, I could have simply read the first line, whatever you're looking to for all will shape your life and just moved on. But the reason I didn't is because his quote-unquote random example of material obsession, that needs to convict us. Does it convict you? Does it ring true? I had a chance to officiate a wedding this weekend and Friday night at the rehearsal dinner, Stephanie and I were sitting with a couple and the wife grew up in Charlotte, in South Charlotte, was a member at Hope at one time. Her whole life was shaped by South Charlotte and now her and her husband and child have moved across the country and it was great. It was fun. We were talking and Stephanie said, hey, are you planning on moving back? I know that your parents want you to, to be near the grandchild. And she said, yeah, I'm really not um, right now and I kind of hope we don't. And we're like, yeah, tell us about it. What's going on? And she said, well, and she, she wasn't being critical or condemning in any way, but rather honest. She said, ever since I've moved, every time I come back, I'm just blown away by how everything in South Charlotte revolves around exactly what Paul Tripp said. Stuff, possessions, houses. All people want to talk about is where do you work and what, what is the status symbol of your resume that we can project? And she said, I never saw it until we left. It is similar, it made me think about the David Foster Wallace commencement speech in 2005 where he told the story about two young fish swimming along in the water in the morning and the older fish swims the other way and says, morning boys, how's the water? And after he leaves, they go, what the heck is water? And that's so true of us. We, we can be so unaware that we're in slavery to material possessions, to these foolish, worthless status symbols that don't mean anything in light of eternity. Proverbs 1 says, It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge, but fools will despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, direct application right now. If you heard what I just said and thought immediately it doesn't apply to me and thought about someone else, you're a fool. I, I, I'm not saying that to be mean. I, I'm trying, hopefully a little bit, to be, be a loving physician when I say that. In his book, Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, Pastor Scott Sauls speaks about the unbelievable importance for us to, to try to grapple in some way with the holiness of God, to live with the right reverence and orientation. And he begins by talking about the story of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 6, we have this story of Isaiah um, having a vision of the throne of God and his holiness and what it does to him. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, and at least for myself, I can often just read past that without any thought to what that means. But Saul says, in the year that King Uzziah died, that was the death of a beloved leader. And then after that, there was a terrorizing military invasion, the stripping away of a nation's history, identity, and a way of life. And he says, we may say the year King Uzziah died was Isaiah's version of 2020 or worse. Y'all remember 2020 a couple years ago? I think about like friends who sent us Christmas cards, you know, 2020, and they would put on there, you know, wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> So all of these things in Isaiah's life are falling apart. And God's people are struggling in so many ways. He says, but instead of coming to the Lord and saying, what the heck are you doing? Look at all my circumstances. Where are you? Show up. Do something. Instead, when Isaiah 
seized the Lord in his holiness, he was undone. He cries out, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. Please, Lord, depart from me. Saul goes on to explain that Isaiah was wrecked by the weight of holiness. He was undone. And he was not alone in this experience. Fear and trembling were common among the people who saw God. Not God as they imagined him to be, but God as he really is. We see this in Job 42 where Job says, I heard of you, but now that I've seen you, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Judges 13, Manoah tells his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen the Lord Every year at Christmas and during the Advent season, we read Luke 2, how the angels showed up and they declared the good news that tonight in the city of David, a Savior has been born. It says, the glory of the Lord shone around them and that the shepherds who received that news were utterly and completely terrified. Even Peter in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus says, hey, won't you throw your net over on this side of the boat to catch some fish? And he does. And the nets begin to break and the boat almost sinks because of the catch. Peter doesn't say, yes, we are going to dominate the market. I am so thankful, Jesus, that we are friends. I'm going to start running my fishing enterprise like Chick-fil-A and we're going to take over. The first thing Peter does is he falls on his knees and says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Saul goes on to explain, notably, the Lord never corrects anyone for responding this way as if they are taking their religion too seriously. If anything, they and we don't take God seriously enough. And this is why I put the quote by Annie Dillard on the front of our bulletin. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with chemistry sets mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. In other words, it's madness to be concerned about what you look like. When you show up at church, we should be all wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return, which is exactly what is happening in the story I just read. He drew them out in a way they could never return. We need to just pause and acknowledge that we don't think this way. And I'm not saying that having a right reverence and all means that every day you're like terrified of God's judgment coming down. That's not what I mean. But but rather living with a wisdom that comes from knowing the fear of the Lord, that he is God, that we are not, that he is in control And as we read these stories, we don't just simply need to be fascinated. We need to ask, Lord, by your spirit, will you use these stories to actually help me see all the things that I'm blind to seeing? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. We need these stories so badly to help us understand who God really is and in light of that knowledge, who we are and how much we need to depend on him every day. So let's just ask ourselves the question that Paul says there, what was the evil that they did in this story? Well, of course, if we're talking about Pharaoh and the Egyptians, it's obvious. They enslaved and persecuted and oppressed and subjugated the Israelites. That's obvious. No confusion that they deserved God's punishment for their sins. But what about God's people? After experiencing God's unbelievable deliverance and redemption through his grace and mercy, it says in verse 8 that they marched out defiantly or confidently with their chest puffed out, almost mocking the Egyptians as they leave Egypt. But look how different their posture is in our passage. They just went from this strong, defiant posture of leaving to now they're terrified and they're screaming out and crying and panicking. They attack Moses. It would have been better if we could have just stayed in Egypt. And then they say, didn't we tell you when we were in Egypt, just let us stay here. And the term in our passage that's translated serve could also be translated worship. Didn't we tell you it would be better if we just worship Pharaoh? Well, you talk about a spit and slap in the face to the king of kings and lord of lords who just redeemed them at the first sign of danger after salvation to say that. They forgot. They doubted. They attacked. Now, we must remember one of the basic, most important rules of Scripture interpretation if we're going to grow in wisdom and not foolishness, is every time you read a story and you see the foolishness or the ignorance or the wickedness of an individual or a people group, instead of doing what your default mode is and saying, I'm glad I'm not like them or they remind me of so-and-so, you need to say, Lord, help me think how they're a mirror of my own heart. That's, that's how we have to read Scripture. The only hero, the only good guy is Jesus, not us. And so what does it look like as we consider their behavior in this passage? They went from being defiant and proud to not just being afraid, but sinning and attacking God and Moses. It reminds me of what, you know, former heavyweight champ Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And we all know, even though we aren't in this exact story of walking out of Egypt from slavery, that life punches us in the mouth all the time. It's easy to roll up in here when everything's great and we're successful and we got nice house, nice cars, nice bonus, our kids are good for the most part, to assent to all the things that we confess and say together in our catechisms. But when life punches you in the mouth and you're afraid and you're terrified, pay attention. Pay attention to what comes out. Because what comes out in those moments is what your heart is really anchored in not in the moments of, of success and the Instagram photos. But when you find yourself, Paul Tripp says, for his glory and our good, God continually writes things into our story that we would have never chosen for ourselves. So when you find yourself surprised and your circumstances are not what you'd want them to be, try to say, Lord, help me to pay attention to what's going on. What is my behavior revealing about the, the, the functional worship and orientation of my heart? And so what was really happening here? We could ask it another way. Did God's people actually have a reason to be afraid and panic? Not a trick question. And the answer is what? Yes and no. 
Eternally speaking, of course, they had no reason to be afraid. They, they didn't just hear stories of God's power. They had witnessed it. And God clearly was with them. It tells us at the end of chapter 13, the Lord went before his people by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So they had a visible manifestation of God's presence with them to remind them, I'm with you. You can trust me. It's okay. Regardless of your circumstances, I'm with you. I am the God who will not leave you nor forsake you, even in the valley of the shadow of death. But of course, the moment they experience danger, they panic. Tim Keller says it this way, sin always begins with the character assassination of God. One of the main reasons we trust God too little is because we trust our own wisdom too much. Translation, anytime we find ourselves like the Israelites in a position that we did not want to be in and we can't clearly and directly see how God's going to use it for our good, we assume he can't use it for his good or that he's not at work. And again, God doesn't always tell us. He didn't tell his people in this story, right? When he, when he sent Moses the message, hey, go tell the elders of Israel, Kill lambs, spread the, spread the blood on the doorpost. As the angel of death passes through, the judgment of God will pass over your homes and then you will be set free and redeemed. And when that happens, tell everybody, we're not gonna go the normal way out of Egypt. We're gonna go this other way that seems foolish and I'm gonna intentionally hem you in and then I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart so the army will come, but I'm gonna redeem you by parting the waters of the Red Sea. So don't be afraid, that's what's gonna happen. He doesn't tell them. But he clearly was setting all of this up. And he was clearly with them. And he's clearly seeking to help them understand what it looks like through the different trials and tribulations of the life of faith to trust God and to grow in dependence upon him. Here's what we need to know. God still does that. He'll do that in our own lives. Paul tells the church of Corinth, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If you're familiar with Paul's story, in other parts of Scripture, he gives details about, I was arrested, I was beaten, I experienced a shipwreck, I floated at sea for numerous nights. And he never says the angel of the Lord showed up and said, it's okay, I'm going to do this, this, and that, and here's why I'm working. He's like, I actually believed in those moments. I was convinced that it was time for me to die. I had received a sentence of death from the Lord. But as the Lord sustained me and brought me through, I can look back and say, he was clearly using all of that to help me depend upon him more. And so the question for us becomes, what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves overwhelmed, terrified, out of control, in danger, in a vulnerable position. Well, Moses says in verse 13 and 14, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. 
So three clear, strong commands that Moses gives. And commentators point out that in the way this is actually written in the Hebrew, this isn't like an encouraging, calming, hey, 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 you don't need to be upset. Come here, let me give you a hug and remind you. This is like a stern rebuke, almost from like a drill sergeant. What are you doing? Have you forgotten who God is? Have you forgotten so quickly what he just did over and over again in Egypt? Stand firm, fear not, be silent. Now taken by themselves as they watched the chariots roll down on them. The chariots were the most advanced and powerful um, military weapon in the world. In the hands of the most powerful and advanced army in the world at that time. They had every reason, earthly speaking, based on what their eyes could see, to be completely and utterly freaking out. But Moses says, hey, you don't need to be afraid. You can actually stand firm. You don't need to try to jump in the sea and swim away. And you're like, wait, how does that make sense? How is that possible? And he says, because you're going to see the Lord fight for you. See, I would argue that the strongest, most important command that Moses gives isn't fear not, be silent, stand firm. It is see the salvation of God. Behold, pay attention, observe, don't ever forget what happens when the Lord fights for you. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 21 through 31, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their wheels so that they drove heavily. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back up upon the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Throughout the Old Testament, this event is referenced over and over and over again. And it's referenced not just as, as a means of remembering and observing and knowing God's awesome power and might, but also referenced as something that God did on purpose as a sign and appetizer of something else to come of a much greater and fuller salvation. Isaiah the prophet says it this way. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. This is the Exodus event we just read about. And then he says, remember not the former things, 
nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, if you were here last week, you may be confused and think, wait a minute. When God saved his people through the Passover, he said, this is actually to be something that you remember and orient your entire life around. Never forget, you are to have this Passover meal where you eat a sacrificial lamb and unleavened bread so that your kids and the kids' kids throughout the generations can say, what does this meal represent? And you say, oh, the Lord saved us by the blood of a lamb in Egypt. Don't ever forget. But now it seems to be that Isaiah is saying, remember not those former things. Don't even think about them. So what's going on here? What's going on is that Isaiah is saying through the Lord, hey, all those former things are pointing to something so much greater. All the ways that God intervened and acted by his power to save his people were pointing ahead to a greater and fuller and final salvation to come. Tim Chester in his commentary on Exodus says it this way, and I couldn't think of a better way to to summarize it, so I'm just going to read what he says. Imagine the walls of waters collapsing in on one another with people and horses being tossed about and dragged down into the depths. This is what Jesus stepped into at the cross. Jesus plunged into the chaos of the waters of judgment so that we can walk through on dry ground. Imagine the people of God standing safe on the shore, watching God's judgment unfold before their eyes. This is what we are doing as we watch with eyes of faith God's son hanging on the cross. When the Israelites saw God deliver them, they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. How much more should we, when we see our deliverance in the cross and resurrection, put our trust in God by putting our trust in Jesus, his servant? See, this is where an appropriate reverence and awe of God's power and holiness should melt our heart to worship. Not to live in unbelievable fear of judgment, but to be overwhelmed that God unleashed his power and judgment do my sin and your sin upon Jesus our Savior on the cross. And to the degree that our hearts are able to see, behold, and be amazed by that reality, then we can do what Moses and God calls us to. We can actually rest. I love in Isaiah 30, the Lord says to his people, it is in returning and in rest that you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. I want to close with this quote by Tim Challies from his book, Seasons of Sorrow. I asked Eric if we could please sing It Is Well With My Soul. I should have been more specific and say, I don't want you to sing it before the sermon because I just was about to cry and almost didn't want to get up. But Chalice is, is, is wrestling with this question, how can I move forward in my life and seek to trust God and live a life of faith um, after he let my son die? After I, in other words, experienced every parent's nightmare. And this is what he says. How then can I let go of such anxiety? How can I continue to live my life? The only antidote I know is this. Deliberately submitting myself to the will of God for comfort is closely related to submission. As long as I fight the will of God, as long as I battle God's right to rule his world in his way, peace remains distant and furtive. But when I surrender, when I bow the knee, 
then peace flows like a river and attends my way. Lord Jesus, we, I don't even know the right words to say that don't feel um, too shallow or trite. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you were willing to go under and to be completely swallowed by the current of God's wrath due our sins on the cross. We confess that all too often when the circumstances are of our lives are not what we would desire them to be, that much like our ancestors in the faith, um, we cry out, um, we sin against you, we want to run back and enslave ourselves to false gods. We need your spirit to come to anchor us more securely in your grace. Thank you for loving us. I pray that your spirit will do the work that we need in our hearts, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Enable us to learn how to depend upon you. I pray that in Christ's name, amen.